and welcome to Reverb. I'm Sophie Wadzak. I'm a co-producer on this show. I'm a freelance journalist, and I teach courses on writing and news media at Carnegie Mellon University. If you follow the news, you may have noticed a word coming up more frequently, socialism. Not only was it name-dropped by the president in his 2019 State of the Union address. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. Politicians aligning themselves with democratic socialism have been making headlines and winning elections. And from teacher strikes to the momentum behind Medicare for all, grassroots socialist organizing is experiencing a renaissance all over the country. As with many concepts that circulate in news discourse, socialism isn't something that the media is great at defining in a concrete or unified way. Conservative sources often use it as a term roughly synonymous with pure evil, while more centrist or liberal-leaning outlets tend to portray its policies and purveyors as impractical and idealistic. On today's episode, I'll be sitting down with Crystal Grabowski, my co-chair of the Pittsburgh DSA's Socialist Feminist Committee and a seasoned and very effective organizer, to demystify some of the things that you may have heard about socialism by talking about our work as socialist feminist organizers. We start by differentiating the ideals and practices of socialist feminists from those of liberal feminists. And then we move into a discussion of what socialist organizing looks like from a rhetorical perspective how we use language and rhetorical know-how strategically when we fight for intersectional social, economic, and reproductive justice. Hello, I'm Sophie Wadzak. I'm a co-producer of the show, and I'm also the co-chair of the Socialist Feminist Committee of the Pittsburgh DSA. Um, I'm excited. Today we're going to be talking about our rhetorical approach to socialist feminism um, and the strategies that we use when organizing around the issues that we as socialist feminists care about and you know work to address. Um, um, and I'd like to welcome my co-chair, Crystal Grabowski. Hi, my name's Crystal Grabowski. I am also a co-chair of the Socialist Feminist Committee of Pittsburgh DSA. Um, I currently work for an abortion provider, and um, I taught middle school English for seven years. And uh, yeah, that's my background. Great. So if we understand rhetoric as the study of how we use language, visual and verbal language, communication, to organize and you know maintain social groups right um, or coordinate behavior or even produce change and you know manage dynamics of power these are all things that we as socialist feminists need to really think carefully about and take seriously when we you know approach our organizing work so I'm excited to have Crystal here today because we're going to discuss you know how thinking about rhetorical strategy is relevant to socialist feminism and in furthering uh, socialist feminist causes. So let's talk a little bit about our why we call ourselves socialist feminists Mm -hmm. Um, because I think it's important to distinguish liberal feminism and socialist feminism as we understand it. So Crystal let me ask you what is it you know for you what's the the main difference or what are the important differences between uh, liberal feminism and socialist feminism. Um, I think the most important difference is in what is characterized as like the problem and you know what we're targeting. Um, like liberal feminism, you talk to a liberal feminist, um, they will obviously agree that sexism is bad, racism is bad, homophobia is bad, um, transphobia is bad. Maybe they might say that depending on who you're talking to, but. Uh, one of the things that socialist feminism does is because um, it's looking at Marxist theory and on all of the history there, it's addressing kind of like what causes those things and not so much as saying those are bad, but also tying them to a long, long history of where those institutions and systems came from, um, how they played off of each other how like a class analysis comes into this and how class is involved in all of these things because you know it's more than just racism uh sexism and all of these things you know there's also there's capital there's capitalism um capitalism plays these things off of each other to enforce oppressive systems that plague our society today i I think that the main difference is kind of what 
the target is and how we describe what the problem is. I think that's a good that's a good way to put it. Let's first talk about what characterizes a liberal feminist, right? So, mm-hmm. and as Crystal said, right, the divide is really a difference in what we think the the problem is and the solution to that problem. We can understand liberal feminism as a desire to achieve equality, right, for yeah. the sexes, but within the power structure that is currently in place. Yeah, right? like um, girl right. bosses. Yeah. More women bosses, more yeah. women like cops, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, like women, we should give women power, but we should give them the kind of power that maintains the system that we're in yeah. right now. And yeah. it's, we understand it is very much tied to capitalism and the incentives mm-hmm. that come with capitalism, right? I was thinking yeah. of um, a, a, a good example of this, right, is um, Marissa Mayer, you know, she was hired to be the CEO of Yahoo. Oh, um, I do remember that. And she was yeah. pregnant when she was hired, and it was oh, like yeah. this big, like, glass door victory, right? Like, yeah. just that kind of tokenism, like, well, this pregnant woman was made a CEO, so... Mm-hmm. But so then she's it, a CEO. But she's a CEO, and when she was hired, she quickly abolished the work from home policy that had been in place oh before which is really important for working you know parents and mothers especially yeah because um, you're so tied to the home with your motherly duties but she at the same time as she abolished that policy installed a private nursery in her own office for herself because she just of had a baby right of so course. if we take that as like the characteristic liberal feminist victory right like yeah there are still going to be people that aren't well off there's still going to be people who are disadvantaged but women can achieve the same kind of power that men can achieve mm-hmm. so from a socialist feminist perspective isn't really fixing the problem because you still have the disadvantaged people yeah um, there's still an inequality exactly yeah. how would you sort of um i think you've i would imagine <laughs> i've had a lot of experience talking to feminists of all mm-hmm. stripes right and sort of maybe reaching across that divide between a socialist and a liberal feminist approach. What do you think are the main issues or what are your main sort of problems with liberal feminism? Like how, how would you, if you were to talk to a liberal feminist, Mm -hmm. like what would you try to communicate to them? Are there misunderstandings? Um, they just need to look at a bigger picture. I think a lot of the time where a lot of times it's just equality um, men and women need to be on the same page. Um, black people and white people need to be on the same page. But there's really so much more than that. And things are actually much more complicated than that. And there's so much conversation to have about, like, just the hu- human history that shows kind of how we got to where we are today that there's small slogans, like, don't really capture or address. And there's, like, a lot of limitations to the language they use. Um, Can you give an example? Like, pro-choice. Okay. Really, pro-choice versus pro-life doesn't really kind of paint the reality of the picture. And also, the word choice, do people really even have a choice? And that's kind of where um, there's been a lot of criticism from a lot of amazing black organizers, black feminist organizers, about how limiting the language of choice is. Because in our current system, in our society, um, you know, like does a poor black woman living in a rural area genuinely have a choice like can you really use that language it's really it's not enough it's not all-encompassing it's exclusive so that's a good i would say choice is a good example of that that's a really good point the idea that it's a choice for only people who can afford choice which is not choice for everyone so again there's this idea that there are always going to be people left out despite that women can gain power it won't lift everyone it won't lift everybody up which that's why it's not enough that's why we must demand more of it yeah Um, so if we're going to kind of talk about a liberal feminist approach what are their main strategies for the things they do want to get done well the big strategy is just voting like get out vote go vote everybody vote vote and we'll make change and like I, I it's always really kind of difficult to bring up this subject because then people are like oh but then are you encouraging people to not vote and it's like no absolutely that's not what i'm doing voting is super important but to say go out and vote and then that's that's the end of the conversation and then you only bring that up during a certain period of time of the year like that is kind of where liberal feminism doesn't work yeah, because it's this idea that the way to make changes within the structure that already exists, yeah, right? Exactly. It's a, so yeah, so 
liberal feminism sort of looks at the problem within the confines of the system that we currently have. But there are things they want to change about the system, and that's sort of another thing that characterizes a liberal feminist approach is that it's about enacting laws and policy and changing rules within the system through voting, essentially, as Crystal said. So what do we think are the main things that are trying to change, given that there are things that they're fighting for, otherwise we wouldn't think of them as a sort of a group? Um, I think that they're trying to get more um, women elected into office, which is definitely something that we need um, in terms of representation. So that is definitely a good and worthy goal, um, which we've been very, everyone's been really successful at. Um, and there's also, um, they do, they're, they're, people do fight for reproductive rights. Um, people do support organizations like Planned Parenthood, and they fight for that kind of support. So they do fight for some normalization, access, more representation, equal representation, e- even if, you know, are, are those efforts enough to make complete lasting change? Well, we've been fighting for a lot of these things for a long time, and but those are kind of some of the things that they are fighting for. They, they don't really take it all the way with some things like, for example, because um, I'm thinking about healthcare. And, you know, a lot of people support Medicare for all and uh, free health care for all. But then you also have a lot of people that are like, oh, uh, Medicare for more. Yeah, Medicare for, for more. I yeah. don't know how that's supposed that's, to sound better than yeah, Medicare like, oh, for okay, all. Oh, okay, now 50-year-olds. That's great. I mean, like, I'm not close yeah. to 50, so. Or this argument that you keep, I mean, I feel like it keeps this as sort of an aside, but like Ivanka Trump saying, I, I don't think people want a minimum salary. Like, this argument keeps being put that like people don't actually want everybody yeah, to have no, it good. No, we do want We that. do, yeah. Or like uh, <laughs> like Nancy Pelosi recently, um, you know, liberal feminist, mm-hmm. saying like, how are we going to pay for Medicare for all? And it's like, well, we there's an answer to that actually. Yeah. So I don't know why, <laughs> but anyway, you know, just they hit like a ceiling. They hit like a wall mm-hmm. with a lot of these things. So it's like, okay, well, you want everybody to be able to access abortions, but you know, you really do have to keep going. Like, and then in order to, yeah. for people to do that, they need health care and they need child care. It's like and, you have to keep going up and yeah. out. Like this, yeah. the idea of a glass ceiling really is sort of a good metaphor because it's like there's a lid to it. Like you're yeah. going up and only up. So if the problem, as we understand it, is that liberal feminism, because it's only sort of focusing on reform and is working within the system, it's not really tackling the root of the problem. Yeah. Um, which makes it sort of this sort of superficial approach because it's never going to really get anything, you know. Yeah. It's just this eternal struggle. It's not going to... It's feel good. Yeah, it's feel good. But, like, as you said, like, we've been fighting for many things for a long time that haven't, you know, mm-hmm. haven't really been fully addressed. And there's also a lot of evidence, too, when you look at, like, feminist history of making, like, having victories and making gains... And then losing momentum and then stagnating. Like, I really think that if you look at the history, that is, well, you know, we it's it's there. Yes, it's the rat race, which I feel like is a good way to introduce sort of another really important distinction between liberal feminism and socialist feminism is that socialist feminism sees capitalism as the root of the problem. As you said, it's a more comprehensive look at what the problem is. So what do we see as the socialist feminist goal, right? If we're not just trying to make sort of small changes within the system, what are we trying to do? So with socialist feminism, we want to uproot the whole thing, like everything, um, the big one being capitalism, um, and then also patriarchy. And from patriarchy, you have like things like heteronormativity and uh, sexism and cis heteronormativity and cis sexism and things like that. And then there's also racism, which is related to imperialism, colonialism, like all of these things. They're like, they're all interconnected. A lot of what we have now is built off of these oppressive institutions and it just needs to completely change from like the roots up. We just completely need to uproot these systems. We need to replace them with uh, more equal and 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 uh, better functioning systems and it's really lofty and it seems a lot more impossible but um it is ultimately what i think socialist feminists are working towards is not like slapping band-aids on things but actually really really building something new that will work for the human race that's beautiful it's a very good <laughs> um so we're talking about how sort of our understanding of capitalism and a socialist approach influences 
feminism. But let's talk a little about how feminism influences socialism or Marxism mm -hmm. or our understanding of those ideas. What does it mean to be not just a socialist, but a socialist feminist? Yeah, so, I mean, with socialism, it's all about class, um, capitalism, class, um, things along those lines. So when you bring in feminism, you bring in ideas like patriarchy and then, like, a lot of uh, intersecting ideas as well that aren't addressed in socialism itself because you're not going to get a lot of, like, things like gender theory and... Uh, uh, criticisms of patriarchy while you're looking at just social socialism itself you need the feminism in there because you need to talk about the history of women um you know we need to talk about trans people we need to talk about gender and whether it's legitimate or not you know we we do need to talk about these things and feminism kind of opens like a new door to move out of just class alone because class is very important but it, it should not be the only thing that we're talking about one reason it's important to introduce feminism to a socialist understanding is that it really affects what we consider to be work, right? That understanding oh, yeah. of labor is different if you take a feminist or if you reject a feminist approach, right? Your understanding mm -hmm. of the worker is different. Yeah, capitalism and patriarchy separate uh, reproduction and production. You know, production is where the value comes from and reproduction is devalued even though it's, at, it's essential. So... You get out of work, and then you go home, and you reproduce yourself, and you reproduce your household and your family, and feed everyone, and you take care of the people who are sick, and you sleep. But there seem to be no value in those other things, even though they're an essential part of our lives, and then the labor we do every day. I mean, it doesn't end when you get out of work. And things like social reproduction theory they really explore kind of like that sort of labor, which has been historically excluded, but is absolutely essential and very important in our society. I agree, because I, it's like ever since women have been in the working world, you're torn between the you know domestic labor that's expected of you and the labor labor that's expected of you, and it, it's something that holds people back. Another thing we've talked about is a difference between liberal feminism and socialist feminism is the strategies for affecting change, as Crystal, you said, it's for, you know, liberal feminism, voting is the tool to affect change. But, and, and even, you know, changing policies and, and enacting laws can make a difference. Like, we're concerned oh, yeah. about changing the lives of people, so it's not that, again, you know, rejecting an electoral approach, but there are more strategies at our disposal, mm -hmm. um, and we try to take advantage of as many as possible for affecting change. Let's talk about our strategies, right? So, so Crystal and I do organizing again with the Socialist Feminist Committee. And Crystal said, "How many? How you had a lot of organizing experience, right?" Um, yeah, I used to. Well, I started off with um, mostly LGBT work, particularly. I mean, I I used to be a liberal um, with um, fighting for marriage equality and uh, kind of like LGBT visibility, and uh, and then. I, it's it's funny because you get asked the question a lot like how did you become a socialist and this is kind of related to that because um you know one when, when marriage equality was one and things along those lines it was like okay you know everything I'm gonna go to work I'm gonna focus on me <laughs> and then it was like wait a second like the plane is still going down and it's still on fire and like I think that you know just like so many other privileged people I realized that too late um but it's great because I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not the only person. And then I feel like there's a lot of people who have been fighting and doing really great work. So that's, that's amazing. But I definitely, um, yeah, I definitely had like a lull after doing that. And then when I, when it hit me and I realized like, oh my God, there's so much more that needs to be done. Things are on fire. Um, things are bad. I nose dove into socialism. Then I immediately got right back into organizing um, with DSA, with um, other different organizations as well, and uh, like National Network of Abortion Funds. And um, I definitely feel like I got the spectrum of liberal feminism to socialist feminism. Not to just, not to also, I gotta also mention, I grew up conservative. Ah, yeah. So yeah, I grew up conservative. So you've really run yeah. the spectrum. Oh right yeah, I get left. it. <laughs> I understand. Um, so I think, you know, it's important to talk about what we see as sort of I want to talk about what we as socialist feminists sort of here at the local level have in our toolbox to be able to, you know, affect change in the community, 
you know, start conversations about important issues. Um, Crystal, can you kind of talk a little bit about what you see as the most effective strategies that we have and, and where we apply them? Because I'd love to sort of talk about this in the real world. What do you see as the main goals for us as socialist feminists here at the local level right now? I think a lot of it has to do with kind of spreading a new language and a new way of talking about some of these issues that looks at the history and that looks at you know what's worked and what hasn't worked and rejects the language that doesn't work and then uh, spreads the language that does work. So I mean, and there's a couple of ways to do that. There's you know things that we can demand unapologetically: um, paid sick leave, um, free childcare, things like that. But then also just even like just normalizing political activism and family life because. Ultimately, as a socialist organization, we're trying to do base building. We're trying to um, kind of, you know, there's a huge, huge liberal base, a lot of, you know, uh, Democrats. But then we also want to expand on that, you know, and, and we want people to accept socialism. So and that involves base building and that involves being as inclusive as possible. So normalizing and using a language that incorporates Fam- working families, um, people of all ages, and normalizing like th- that presence and that those ideas is really important. So that way, you know, people will feel accepted and they'll do work and they'll think about uh, politics and they won't feel alienated. Um, and we'll build community and we'll build a base. Those are really important things right now as we're gearing up for a long fight ahead of us. Um, specifically when it comes to uh, things like reproductive rights, um, you know, expanding the language, like looking at what like amazing leaders before us have done, like like uh, like listening to organizations like Sisters Song when they say like you know we need reproductive justice and we need to look have this framework in which we look at this and we need to look at language beyond choice really looking at those organizers and listening to what they're saying and adopt, you know kind of changing the language that we're using where we're talking about socialism and the same breath in which we're talking about um, abortion and free childcare and free healthcare kind of just like building these ideas up um, which involve a lot of the time having conversations and that's one of the ways in which it is really similar to electoral strategies where, okay, you want somebody to get elected. So what do you do? You go out and you have conversations with as many people as you can and you reach as many people as you can. That is a good strategy. But that strategy needs to be used in, you know, outside of electoral as well. So it works there. But, you know, you need to be talk- going to people and talking about um, health care, about reproductive health care, about the obstacles that families face really concrete things that we can demand and the language in which we can demand those things like okay we want accessible reproductive health services okay we're gonna go out and have conversations that introduce people to that language where we can demand those things um and like the more you spread the ideas and have the conversations and get the ideas out there the more normal normal they are and it really feels like you can really make some leeway there that's when i feel like you might start getting some policy changes It, it everything comes up from below I was, and you were at, we were both at, and a, lo- a number of people, um, socialist feminists in Pittsburgh, were at a event the other day. Um, it was the right to choose in Ireland. And a, a, a speaker, Miriam Poisette from Rosa, from Ireland, where they recently uh, won the repeal the eighth, where they repealed the eighth amendment that uh, banned abortion. One of the things that she was talking about when she was describing their successful movement was that it was this explosion from below. And like, that's really what we need. Like we need like this explosive movement to just come up and exact change by like influencing everything from policies to the conversations that people are having in their living rooms to what's on television and what's on the radio. Yeah. It's like the exact opposite of trickle down. Yeah. It's like, right? Explode up, trickle down, explode up. Exactly. Right. It's a, it's a fundamental difference in understanding about how the change needs to happen, you know, and why. So Crystal, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, um, a really effective way, as you said, to reach people is to go out and talk with them. And, uh, there's kind of a framework in place for that, right? When you're going out to talk to people that you, you know, want to reach and get involved. Um, the one-on-one and Crystal is very, good at it uh will you talk a little bit about what what that is yeah so um the one-on-one strategy is and this is like just an organizing thing where okay you're in an organization you are an activist and you're an organizer and uh, 
Um, so then what, you know, how are you going to like actually like have volunteers and like have people who want to do the work? Um, and you have to, you know, bring them in and you have to give them ideas and you have to give them the tools and you have to inspire them. And one of the ways to do that is you can meet with them one-on-one, um, and like a safe, uh, you know, meet somebody, go get coffee and just like talk about the things that they care about, which can be like, um, what are some of the issues that you're facing? And you can get to know each other first of all and you can start building a relationship just on like a personal human level then once you figure that out then you can figure out how to plug them into work like oh wow you really care about this and there is this project going on and they need help they need work that they need uh, labor they need volunteers and you can help plug them into that and then there's also this aspect to doing like a one-on-one conversation where you know, you inoculate them where you, you bring up something that might go wrong. Like, you know, when you're having that conversation, you know, it can be really hard to talk about this. And then you give them strategies to problem solve the things that might come up when they're doing that work. And then um, you plug them in and you give them resources and you and it's this whole thing that kind of makes people feel comfortable, gives people ideas and really just brings people into the work. And it just involves kind of meeting with them one-on-one and talking to them face-to-face and getting a little window into what their reality is and dispelling their fears and their anxieties about exacting change in the world. Because there is, too, you know, a a factor in socialist organizing is that socialism as a concept, as a word, um, as an an idea in Mm -hmm. America still is, there's a lot of stigmatism around Mm -hmm. it. Um, And that's something that really needs to be part of your consideration of the rhetorical situation that you're in, right? You know that people will very likely be resistant to mm-hmm. that label alone. Yeah. Um, what What do you think are? How have you approached that before? Have you sort of been? Have you been in a situation where you had to sort of meet that in the moment, like an aversion to socialism with somebody that you were actually talking to? Yeah, absolutely. Not necessarily in like a one on one, but like there's so much stigmatizing of socialism and when you just learn and absorb American history. So immediately I love going to just an issue, like healthcare being probably the easiest thing to talk about. So if somebody doesn't like socialism, I immediately would like bring up healthcare and then start talking about kind of some of the problems they've experienced, which I mean, you know, like no matter how much of a capitalist somebody might think they are, you know, it's very, you can get them to complain about healthcare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can get them to complain about the bills and the, and, and just uh, the insurance companies. I mean, these aren't good things. And from there, you can start, kind of start branching out and exploring different options where, okay, maybe you can't immediately start talking about Medicare for all, but maybe you can talk about how um, the system, the healthcare system does need to reform and needs to change. So you're not going to turn somebody into a socialist in like, two minutes but you can really start meeting them at kind of the reality that exists in these areas that they you know that they've experienced and you've experienced and you have that common experience and you can kind of find a common ground that might not even necessarily be in the middle but in doing that they understand you better you understand them better and maybe you've kind of helped bring them a little bit closer to not being freaked out by socialism or maybe understanding why somebody likes socialism. I think that's important too because it's like the also the secret advantage like you're facing this sort of stigmatism as sort of a baseline like you know that's an obstacle that you might have to face you know broadly conceptually but you have the advantage that a lot of the problems that we're talking about really do apply to so many of us, right? Like the 99% of people, right? Like Mm -hmm. capitalism is not working for most people. So if you can get them to see that on its own first, then the conversation Mm -hmm. about, well, here's this different approach and understanding becomes easier, but it's like they have to come to it on a personal level. I mean, I know for me, you know, I've come to have a socialist understanding based on, you know, and through my own personal experience and what's affected me. So if, you know, one-on-ones are a good way to sort of, on a personal level, get people to sort of understand what we're talking about, perhaps destigmatize socialism and its idea, which is an important task, I would say, when we're trying to... Mm -hmm. One thing that really struck me about Miriam's talk the other night was 
how different the situation is in oh, yeah. in Ireland versus America. The main sort of most obvious one is being size. Like when you talk about uniting people for this sort of explosion from below, as mm-hmm. she was talking about, when you're dealing with a smaller, you know, it's an island, it's insular, mm-hmm. it's and just very, very much smaller. So getting that kind of mass solidarity around a cause is different than here in America where it's just so much bigger and they're, mm-hmm. you know, just because inherently of the size, there's so many more <laughs> different factors that you have to address. Yeah. Which is sort of the ongoing obstacle. Yeah. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about, you know, if the one-on-one is about sort of destigmatizing socialism, a lot of the work we do in our committee is about reproductive would you say rights or justice, Crystal? I want to talk about this <laughs> distinction. So reproductive rights, um, is when we talk about that, we, we, we generally know we're talking about abortion, we're talking about birth control, and uh, other health, reproductive health care related things. But there's really a lot more to solving the problem of access and addressing these issues that aren't really involved in some of the reproductive rights conversations and we there are a lot of people who've pointed this out over the la- couple last couple of decades and have begun to expand on these ideas and bring more into it specifically there's the idea of reproductive justice which is a movement that is led and organized and pertains to uh, women of color particularly black women and um, the idea of reproductive justice is a lot more encompassing. There's a lot of things that like white women don't think about when they say those words that um, people with more experience and understanding do. And like, and that's part of like reproductive justice where it's not just being able to access abortion um, because people can't access abortion if it's not affordable um, or free. <laughs> they can't drive to a abortion appointment if there's no good public transit or if they can't afford a car or if loans are predatory and they can't go if they can't get childcare and they can't go if they don't have like you know if they don't live anywhere near a place like that there's also and it's more than that too which is what i love about um, all of the work that people have done with reproductive justice is that then you start talking about childcare. Then you start talking about people being able to live in safe ho- like homes with a parent who is supported and has pay and, and health care and um, has time off and has time with them. And then you start talking about um, how people deserve to live in safe communities. So then it bring, you get into areas of like p- police brutality that... Um, police brutality is a reproductive justice issue because p- th- that kind of violence tears families apart. And um, uh, police abolition and prison abolition, very radical topics, are part of that as well. Because um, I mean, especially with like addressing problems with prisons, because prisons also tear families apart and particularly um, have destroyed the lives of so many people of color in the United States. So the framework that um, people like Sister Song, or I'm sorry, organizations like Sister Song have created over the years is really, really, really important because choice is inadequate. We need to recognize that some people really don't have any choices compared to others. So I want to talk about this as it pertains to a particular project that we've been working on for over a year now in the Socialist Feminist Committee. So we have, for over a year now, sort of had a project, um, or I've been dedicating a lot of our committee's efforts towards exposing crisis pregnancy centers, CPCs, or fake clinics, um, they're called both things, in the local area. So if we're talking about how feminism pertains to socialism, exposed fake clinics are a very important example about how all of these things are tied together uh, on a practical level. So fake clinics often will frame themselves as being pro-choice, like our local fake clinic, though the one that we've been um, focusing our efforts around, which has choice in the name. So they appear to be pro-choice and that they're clinics that you can go to for reproductive health care. But it's, you know, they have their own agenda and that really influences the kind of care that they give um, and really brings about some pretty nefarious strategies that they use to manipulate women. And I think, uh, Crystal, you're a great 
person to really explain what's going on with these fake clinics because you work for a real clinic. So yeah. um, can you sort of ex- you know break down what, mm-hmm. what we mean when we say that a crisis pregnancy center is a fake clinic? So crisis pregnancy centers are staffed and run and funded by people who are pro-life um, is a more popular term, but I would rather frame it as anti-abortion. So they're run by anti-abortion people. Often they have some staff, but um, a lot of times they have a lot of volunteers as well, which are usually recruited from churches. And what they do is they make themselves look like abortion providers, like Sophie mentioned, um, by saying like choice um, and having choice in their title. Or a lot of times they situate themselves near an abortion provider. They also, if you Google abortion, they'll come up um, as well just because of SEO and how that works. So even just proximity is a strategy for them. Yeah, like so just... proximity is a strategy. What they do, So people will think that they provide abortions or, or provide some sort of reproductive health service. And people will go there and they will um, get a free ultrasound. And they can do like a free pregnancy test and they can do a free consultation because a lot of people don't know what to do when they find out they're pregnant. They, they're pregnant and they're like, oh my God, what do I, I have no idea what the first step is because nobody ever really talks about it. Like um, yeah, maternal health care and, yeah. and the way uteruses operate are like, it's not really ever explained or addressed very well. It's not common knowledge. Yeah. Health, a lot of healthcare knowledge is not common knowledge, unfortunately. Well, and especially women's healthcare is so stigmatized. Yeah, it's this very sort of stigmatized. A, you know, a controversial topic that is not, you know... Yeah, it's like hush-hush. Right. So um, they don't really know. They So they Google things, and then they find these crisis pregnancy centers, which look like they will help. And then they go there, and oftentimes um, then they are subjected to, like, what is essentially ma- manipulation? So... These places are biased. They want to convince people to carry their pregnancies to term. They won't refer people to abortions. And then it, it gets as bad as the, um, them also offering inaccurate information. So they may not be entirely truthful about the process of scheduling an abortion or how far along the person is um, after they do the ultrasound. Like I've talked to a number of patients seeking abortion care that were told like, okay, you're nine weeks but you should wait a couple weeks before you schedule your appointment for your abortion and it's like well no like if yeah, you're it doesn't make sense. if you're pregnant you know how far along you are and you know you want an abortion there's no reason to wait all you need is a positive pregnancy test you don't even need an ultrasound and by the time they schedule their appointment then so let's say that person was like nine weeks or whatever they schedule their appointment maybe they can't get in for a couple of weeks because there's not a lot of providers they get in they're like 14 weeks the price literally doubles right and it might go from them being able to afford it to them not being able to afford it worst case scenario they might go from being within the legal limit to obtain an abortion to not within the legal limit to obtain an abortion so the that lying and that sort of like misleading uh, information about how to go about scheduling, how to handle the crisis pregnancy is one of the things that they do. I, w- I wonder if you could explain who exactly fake clinics are preying upon. Well, they're preying on people who can't afford the services, like can't afford an ultrasound, can't even afford a pregnancy test, maybe even. They can't afford, they're worried about affording an abortion, they're worried about affording a child, they're worried about affording literally anything, maybe even. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, they they definitely prey on those individuals. So there's a lot of gaps in healthcare. There's not a lot of providers of services. Like whether it's um, it, sometimes it can be hard to get STD testing. It can be hard to get like a pregnancy test that you trust. Um, it can be hard that to find an OBGYN. Um, so they're they're really preying on poor people, students, people who might have traveling issues, like they don't have transportation. So, uh, and, and then like the, a lot of times crisis pregnancy centers are somewhere accessible. They're really preying on those people who our healthcare system fails. Yeah. And I think it's, it's sort of, it's interesting because they're not only preying on gaps in healthcare, which is very much the case. They're also, as we sort of touched on, they're preying on gaps in information. Exactly. Um, you know, because yeah. women's bodies and, and because women's health care is so stigmatized, mm-hmm. you don't, before you get pregnant, you really don't. You know, there's this, like, mad dash to, like, read up on pregnancy because, you know, if you've never been pregnant before, it's Mm not... I mean, everybody's situation is different, but as a society, we're not, you know, readily making... Like, I never learned about that 
in school. Like, we were mm-hmm. taught some rudimentary sex education, but pregnancy wasn't really, and childbirth wasn't part of it. Like, yeah. it's all sort of fragmented. You, you don't have information about that. And again, with the fake clinics, like, people don't have information at, at sort of the user level, right? Like, y- y- the personal level. Um, about what distinguishes a fake clinic from a real one, how to tell them apart, what they do and don't do, and what people need. You know, again, the examples, Crystal, that you shared about, you know, oh, you're, you know, you have to wait. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the only way that works is if people don't know those things themselves. Exactly, yeah. So it's really important to spread information, which is what, you know, which is really what we're trying to do in our committee work. Um, So exposed fake clinics, we've started um, doing what we've been calling street canvassing. So we've been standing outside of these fake clinics in the area in order to help people understand what they are, what they do, Mm -hmm. and and all these issues that we've been talking about. So I, I think it's an interesting strategy to talk about, especially because it's really, as we've said in the past, it's really flipping the script on spreading information about these fake clinics. Crystal, can you sort of, why, why is it that standing outside of fake clinics is such an effective way to sort of counter them or to, you know, to meet them rhetorically, as it were? Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. So... When people are really passionate about reproductive rights and reproductive justice, um, and then they see anti-abortion people and what they do, I think they, they get really frustrated and they want to do something. And then a lot of people will like recommend things like counter-protesting in front of um, abortion providers against protesters. But there's like, what if instead of instead of going in front of a real abortion provider, which is trying to provide care, instead of bothering them what if we went to the anti-abortion people like right to where they are to their organizations so it's it's like taking it kind of away from where it shouldn't be and putting it where it is like we should be going to where they are and calling them out because if they're going to be calling out like facts and science and um if they're going to be calling out uh, contraceptives as being abortion and all of the ridiculous things that they do, then we might as well go that in that other direction. So that way we can use all of that anger and that energy that people have when they talk about uh, reproductive rights and kind of like aim it at the appropriate places, which are these buildings and facilities and storefronts that are deceiving pregnant people. It's 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 a little difficult because obviously we when we, if we were to just go out in front and just stand there with, like, signs, then we might look like abortion protesters. Right, like abortion protesters. Yeah. This is so important, right? Like, so you have to be there was a lot of planning that went into how to go about doing this in a way that actually is detrimental to the Crisis Pregnancy Center and lets people know what the Crisis Pregnancy Center is and um, kind of what's going on. And so, isn't detrimental to the people that are looking the for pregnant care. people that are looking yeah. for care, right? Because mm-hmm. like if they're on their way there, then they're looking for care, and you don't yeah. want to like. It's such a fragile place to to be yeah. in, and you're so vulnerable. You don't want to make like you have to like do damage to the right target, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about being like very focused in your yeah. strategy. So it's definitely something that is done very carefully. But the idea of flipping the script is kind of like we go to the anti-abortion people, and we're like what the hell are you doing? You know, basically like, uh, hey guys, check out this place. This is this is messed up. Look at this. You know, it's right here in your neighborhood. You're walking by it. What's going on here? And um, we pass out information about places that offer the same services, but that are actually at comprehensive healthcare providers that are unbiased and, you know, actually, you know, they're, they're not operating on an agenda other than being a healthcare facility. Um, So we let people know about other places that offer free STD testing and treatment that um, are in the area. We let people know about places that accept Medicaid. We let people know where they can get free pregnancy tests done. There's actually a lot of places that do free pregnancy testing that aren't crisis pregnancy centers. Um, It's one of those things that I feel like the the element of the mm -hmm. internet is important here too because, you know, there are a lot of reasons and ways people get pregnant and they're not all super positive, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're vulnerable... The internet is the place people go so often mm-hmm. for information because it's this sort of like anonymous, mm-hmm. you don't have to talk to anybody about it. So if you don't want people to know that you're pregnant, it's harder to ask about yeah. pregnancy testing. It's harder to ask it's about hard what to, get to that do. Like, not everybody has somebody they can turn to for reliable information. Mm-hmm. The internet fills that gap for so many people. So a lot of this plays out, again, with the Google results, right? Like yeah, if Google you results. search big... here, abortion Pittsburgh sites for fake clinics that will not give you an abortion come up like yeah they're one of the first ones sometimes even yeah 
It's that proximity again. It is. Like, it's proximity. They're there. They're filling the gap. Like if you're vulnerable and if you're in a hurry, like you're you're satisfying, right? Like well, that's the first thing that came up, and it says mm-hmm. women's choice. So I guess I'm gonna go there, mm-hmm. and then you're in, and then they can kind of do yeah. what they what they, they want. can tell you what they want, right? In terms of manipulative yep. tactics, um, one thing I think that's so canny about the street canvassing that we've been doing is that because we're using sort of a framework that anti-choice people use themselves to protest mm-hmm. abortion providers it, it sort of shields you from criticism from them because if they're gonna call you out you know for 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 just being out there and mm-hmm. agitating you know in a visible way that's something that they do so they, yeah. they can't really use that defense which i think makes it really a i think approach. i think it leaves them a little shocked like i think yeah. that they don't quite know how to handle it. One thing that's really important to know is that a lot of people who volunteer or work at crisis pregnancy centers are also involved in abortion clinic protesters as well. Like either they're the same people or they work together or they coordinate or, you know. So they're, it's very, very, very much related. So when they know what they're doing and they see you doing the same thing, but doing it like back at them, they... They, they don't say that you can't do it. Right. They, they don't can't. say you can't do it. Yeah, yeah. They know they can't say that you can't do it. So they're, they're a little speechless. Yeah. They ask a lot of questions, I can tell you that. <laughs> and we have a lot of answers, so that's yeah. good. That's the thing. But... I feel like there's plenty of, you know, I, I feel like it's easy to sort of defend a position that you feel is like the one that is giving yeah. people ownership of their own lives and bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so talking about how to sort of attack them, right, do damage to the target that's intended, the, you know, the fake clinics themselves is one thing. But then as we've discussed, like we have to be mindful of the people who are seeking care because we don't want to do further harm to them. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, and I want to kind of talk about that more, like how we sort of, how we include them in our strategizing. If what we're trying to get at is like, make sure that they get the information that they need, mm-hmm. make sure, because again, you know, you see a cluster of people outside a clinic. And if you're not yet aware that that clinic is a fake clinic, you might think that they're protesters, you might shut them out, you might try to, you know, mm-hmm. not engage. So getting information to the people that need it without harming them or intimidating them is a challenge Mm -hmm. and one that we've really kind of tried to think about carefully in this work. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them being even just the sort of the simple, seemingly simple question of what we write on our sign. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, the the thought process and the rationale for what we ended up kind of using? We actually went through a lot of trial and error because this is pretty, it's not like a brand new idea, but like the way we're doing it required a lot of tweaking because we wanted to talk about socialism and we wanted to kind of be really super careful about our presentation. We we started off and we, we tested a couple different words and language and phrases on our signs where, and we, we kind of gauged people's responses to see what was the least confusing. Cause like, you know, if people clearly thought we were abortion protesters, obviously, okay, we're doing something wrong here, what are we doing? If people were confused, um, we really took that stuff very, very seriously. And I, we took a lot of feedback from our volunteers from the very early days of the street canvassing. And we tweaked the language. Um, we found out that using the word abortion on the, any thing, any, any of the signs, saying it ourselves as people walked by was not good. Because people immediately would think that we were protesters of real um, abortion care. Um, Another thing, too, is we found that people know pro-choice. People know what that means. They know what anti-choice means. It's accessible and it's understood. So we actually found um, using language that said this place is anti-choice and like making like this place very big and bold and clear and anti-choice very big and bold and clear um, was much more people like really understood what we were saying more so it really like decreased the confusion um so we found that like language was a, was very important in 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 getting our point across uh we also have like a little pitch that when people walk by we'll say something and we'll say like uh we're pro-choice but this place is not do you want to hear more about crisis pregnancy centers so we do identify ourselves as pro-choice because it is, you know, as much as like I wish we want, we want to see the language evolve um, as soon as we can. But right now, that's like people know what that means. And we want people to know exactly what we're talking about. So we use that language um, to make them know immediately what we're doing. 
Because time is a factor. Like, you don't have, if you're talking about people, like, mm-hmm. walking down the street. Like, you yeah. you don't have, you can't assume that they've got a lot of time to talk to you. So it's yeah. like, you have to do it quickly. And we had a lot of success with um, all of the language changes we made. Because basically, we found a lot more times, like, instead of people being, thinking that we were anti-abortion, being like, ah, oh, you know, screw you guys. Um, they would... Be like, this place is anti-choice. Like, is this one of those crisis pregnancy centers that I heard about on TV? Or, or well, what do you mean by that? And then, or, um, well, you're talking about reproductive rights, but your science is anti-choice. You know, they would start asking questions. And then we could really, that's when they engage with us. After that, we can go into a conversation. And that's exactly what we want from that conversation. Maybe we can start talking about health care. Maybe we can start talking about free health care. Maybe we can start talking about... Well, access and about childcare. You know, we were looking for a certain effect from the language that we used on our signs and in our pitches, and um, it did involve some workshopping and feedback, and uh, and then we d- we were able to find stuff that worked and what didn't work. So, so we were talking about this. Um, you know, starting conversations about how all these things tie together. If you were taking a reproductive justice sort of framework um, to your organizing and one thing I think that this really relates to the international women's strike um, yes. and I think this ties to sort of it calls back to something we were d- addressing earlier in conversation um, when we were talking about Miriam Poizat who was talking about fighting for abortion rights in Ireland but it's such a different situation for us here than it is there which we've sort of addressed before but um, Crystal you were you were mentioning how America sort of tied to this international framework that is ultimately how we need to sort of understand this. Yeah, so uh, one of the reasons I really like the International Women's Strike when it comes to like ways for people to participate in feminist organizing is it, well, the fact that it is international and it's actually, there's a lot of different little histories that all really tie together. There was, uh, recently in Poland, there was a Um, restrictive abortion law that was being considered and what women did is they all went out into the streets and protested um and they just came out in force just like by the by the thousands and thousands and thousands and um that sort of pressure that like explosion upwards um had a huge impact that stopped that from happening um and then there's also the neonomenos movement in latin america which is uh, also talks about um, abortion rights and that, but it also talks uh, about gender violence and and really important things along those lines as well, um, and and that's been a very uh, huge and successful movement. Uh, there's just been a number of different things that women have been going out and and joining up together and 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 mass demonstrations and they address. Uh, I, recently this year there was a woman killed in Kenya. And they're also taking it up under the helm of the international women's strike, where they're like, uh, we are going to protest for this young woman um, who was killed because we're sick of gender violence and we're sick of women being murdered. And they're kind of bringing it into this international movement because countries in Latin America are talking about gender violence and abortion rights. Countries in Europe are talking about um, abortion and gender and to gender violence and labor rights. And we're seeing a lot of mass uh, mobilization and 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 mass demonstrations being led and organized by women and also um, being composed almost entirely of women, which is really, really, really fantastic. I want to talk a little bit about that, actually. So International Women's Strike is put on by many different Mm -hmm. organizations. It's a a a coalition. coalition, Right. Um, Because you you play an active role in organizing Mm -hmm. at the local level. Can you sort of talk about who are the sort of the, the different organizations that are involved yeah so um obviously i'm with dsa so dsa is involved um there also there's other socialist organizations such as socialist alternative iso international socialist organization um iww um i believe is involved uh palestine solidarity organizations are involved such as uh sjp and there's also uh things like the green party um pittsburgh coalition to end the deadly exchange which talks about um both Palestine um, and uh, Israeli defense and, and, and the violence that uh, Israel uses against Palestinian people. I mean, there's just like a whole bunch of like different organizations that cover issues from uh, labor rights 
to to uh, healthcare, to transport, to uh, police brutality and anti-imperialism and and just a lot of different issues are able to plug into the international women's strike because the platform is really expansive and includes like a broad a broad uh, a different array of different issues which we're all really united fighting against um, not just in the United States uh, we're all fighting like really the same fight and we can learn from each other and we can adopt similar strategies and tactics and language too and um hopefully get that you know explosion up from um from below that can really make an influence on on our society and and maybe actually make some change it's really important to remember that the oppression that like the police brutality and the debt and the lack of health care and the struggles that we face here in the United States are connected and can be tied into a conversation about the violence and the, the racism in other countries as well. Um, and it, it was really important to paint a big picture and to know that, you know, there's comrades all over. I think it's such over. an important thing, right? Yeah. Like solidarity is our strength, like so much of mm-hmm. what, you know, the tools of capitalism to oppressed people rely on sort of gaps in mm-hmm. knowledge, gaps in in care, but also just gaps in solidarity and coalition building. Like you know, yeah. you know, you're encouraged to sort of see see your enemy next to you and not the enemy up above. And so mm-hmm. building solidarity through international movements to me is a really important part of, you know, what what it is. Um when we come together, we can learn from each other. But then also there's that sort of visibility of coming together for people to see, yeah. um, which would you say that those two go hand in hand, or is one of them in the context of sort of mass demonstration? What would you say is sort of more the motive, or is that the goal sort of is tied together? Like, I think it's it's hard to separate them because in building the movement and spreading the word and getting people to plug in and go out on into the streets and to listen to speeches and to make demands and to refuse to work and to do all those things you need to build relationships and solidarity um that's how you inspire people to to do things that take strength and that take time and labor and 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 sacrifice you have to support each other you know and it's not easy to do these things you some people need rides people need money that they're missing out and missed wages people need people need support so it's it, you you're building solidarity but then also if you manage to have if you manage to succeed in building coalitions that are strong and having solidarity um, with your comrades then you end up with thousands upon thousands of people in the streets and you freak politicians out and you freak the media out and you um, influence policy and you influence the narrative and the one really goes right into the other yeah. Basically, like you need to build that base and that solidarity and that coalition. You need to connect it to the big picture and to um, the international fight, um, the fight for human rights, the fight against capitalism. It's, it, it's, you get results. Right. You get results when you have thousands and thousands of people stepping out into the streets. I think that that's, you know, really important. And, and, and one, to me, is maybe one of the best ways we can sort of get people to stop being afraid or nervous about socialism and get them to see it as what it really is which is like a support system yeah fully fleshed out because capitalism doesn't support you it's not designed to support you you have to support yourself in capitalism but if you know socialism that's what it's about like supporting each other because it is hard work and it's not easy to do so building up support networks is like the whole wholesale but also on a on a local level and i think um yeah. i really I think it's really interesting how many different tactics there are for connecting with people, spreading information, making change, and building power beyond, again, just sort of voting, which is another, mm-hmm. um, which is a really insufficient understanding of yeah. how to affect change. Yeah. Um, the local international women's strike is on March 8th and uh, four o'clock city count, uh, city county building downtown. Um, there will be speakers and music and, um, and and in things in a rally and things along those lines and it's okay to go out make yourself super visible um, and to 
demand things that people tell you aren't realistic. Like, there's so many people talking about Medicare for all now. Um, you know, okay, well, how do we pay for that? But it's like, you know what? Go out, go to the International Women's Strike, say that you absolutely need free health care right freaking now and you're sick of waiting. Just, just go and do it. And, you know, there's a lot more to winning than just doing that. Uh, there's a lot of like different strategies that need to be employed, but I know I think that you know there's a lot of effect to to being part of a coalition, to working with a number of different organizations, and being in solidarity with people locally and in countries all over the world. There's just there's you know solidarity isn't everything, but it's a big thing, and um, this is just one way that people can plug in. That is that can, you know, can be inspiring and maybe um, set the tone for making demands throughout the year for radical change. It's powerful to be in a, mm-hmm. in a big group of people and it mm-hmm. really shows you you're not alone in the struggle as much as it, you know, is encouraged, you're encouraged to think that you are, you're not. And I think it really, it makes sense that a multifaceted understanding of the problem and the system and what we're up against goes hand in hand with a multifaceted mm-hmm. strategy for attacking it at, at every level of conversation. And the, you got to take the language further too, because a lot of like liberal feminist mass mo- uh, demonstrations, like, like for example, as I mentioned before, the women's March, you know, a lot of liberal feminists are afraid to take things to the next level. They're afraid to criticize the police. They don't want you to criticize the police. Um, they don't want to get rid of prisons. They don't want to dream of a world without prisons. Um, they, they don't think we can afford Medicare for all. And, it's like, no, you really, you, you need to criticize the police and prisons and, and the system and, and, health, and the healthcare system and, and you know, colleges and debt and loans and cap, capital in yeah. general and bosses. Like, you really do need to criticize them and, and, and think about what, what's not working. And you really need to be part of a radical feminist movement. You have to be a radical feminist. I'm sorry. But, we're, <laughs> but you just have to. You just have to. I mean, you just got to do it. Um... So we want to make sure you guys know about some cool events. If you're interested in really getting out and experiencing this kind of solidarity, really, you know, IRL in the world, um, the International Women's Strike is coming up March 8th. What time is it, Crystal? Around 4 p.m. 4 p.m. Okay. City County, City County building downtown. Yeah. There's also a student strike on March 7th, which um, I believe is at CMU. Yeah, CMU. Yep. It's, it's well, uh, any any university student yep. can participate. There are um, people are rallying in Shenley Plaza. Oh, that's it. Um, yeah. On Forbes Avenue at 308 for March 8th. Um, so come out to that, walk out of class um, to the student rally, and then the next day there's the International Women's Strike downtown. If you want to learn more about socialist feminism and how to get involved in the work that we're doing either here in Pittsburgh, if you're a Pittsburgh local listener, or if you're listening farther afield, check and see if there's a DSA chapter in your area. Chances are they have a socialist feminist committee and you can get involved. You should also visit and share the link to the website about local crisis pregnancy centers and CPCs in general. It's exposedfakeclinicspgh.com. Um, the more you share it and click it and dwell on the page, um, the better it'll be in search results. So that's one really simple way to help is to go browse the website and share it. Because again, the mm-hmm. you know if you if you Google abortion Pittsburgh, you're gonna the top results are fake clinic providers. Yeah. So the most you know this is another aspect of the strategy, right? Like generating traffic on the web around our website is another way to really combat trying to call them out exactly. Um, and then there's also another really great thing that's coming up, which I love every year, is the National Network of Abortion Funds Bowlathon. It's a competition to raise as much abortion funds uh, money as you can. You kind of, you create a page, you can join a team, you can be competitive. Um, abortion funds are super important because abortion is really expensive and inaccessible to a lot of people, and it helps um, improve access for people who really need abortion services and uh, need kind of like the assistance of, from the funds for both travel, um, lodging, and medical expenses. So donating to funds is super, super important. So the National Network of Abortion Funds Bolathon, um, it's a really, 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 really great and fun thing to do uh, on a yearly basis. That really makes a difference in people's actual mm-hmm. real lives. Crystal, thanks so much for taking the time to, to sit with me and talk about all this stuff. No problem. Um, it's been really cool talking about sort of the strategies we use as socialist feminists. And thank you everyone out there for listening. 
Today's show was produced and edited by Sophie Watsa, with production assistance from Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers are Colleen Storm, Caitlin Rossi, and Ryan Mitchell, with graphic designs and artwork by Curry Van Norwick, and social media assistance from Lizzie Donaldson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.